HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by S. Wallace Edwards & Sons, third-generation cure masters producing the country's best dry-cured and aged hams, bacon, and sausage. For more information, visit edwardsvaham.com. This is Sherry Bayer from All in the Industry. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. everyone, and welcome to Eating Matters, where we talk about food policy and how it impacts all of us. I am your host, Kim Kessler, with the Resnick Program for Food Law and Policy at UCLA School of Law, and we are broadcasting live from Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn, on Heritage Radio Network. And I want to also introduce my assistant producer, Talia Ralph. She's joining me today in the studio to co-host. Hi, Talia. Hi, Kim. Nice Thanks to have for you having here. me. Uh, today, we are going to delve into two groundbreaking civil rights lawsuits against the United States Department of Agriculture with one of the lead plaintiff attorneys from the cases, Anara Gvarma, of the firm Aiken Gump, Strauss, and Hauer and Feld. In the case, Pigford v. Glickman, in one of the lead cases, Pigford v. Glickman, African-American farmers claimed that the USDA had systemically discriminated against them on the basis of race, wrongfully denying them of farm loans and assistance. There was also a subsequent case relating to alleged USDA discrimination against Native American farmers. We're going to be talking about both of those cases with our guest, and I want to welcome Anurag Varma, who I believe is calling in from Washington, D.C. today. Hi, Anurag. Hi, Kim. He came and presented uh, at UCLA Law School earlier this year about his work on these cases as plaintiff's attorney to an absolutely rapt audience. And Anurag, I'm really glad that you can join for the show today. Oh, it's great, uh, great to be on the line with you. So as I have just described, the Pigford case was ultimately a case of real historical significance, resulting not only in more than a $1 billion settlement, but also changes to practices at the USDA. But you were involved from the case from the very beginning, and that wasn't necessarily how you knew it would all end up when you started out then. Can you tell us the story about the origins of the case and how you got involved? Sure. Um, the, the the case, I'll, I'll give you a little background. Uh, it's a discrimination case, and it comes from a long history, uh, the history being um, uh, USDA has federal farm loan programs. These programs 
uh, are, are implemented in a very decentralized way. So at one time, uh, USDA had about 2,700 offices around the country, county offices. And so when you'd read in the paper that, you know, X billion dollars, you know, has been, you know, uh, given to USDA by Congress for their loan programs, well, those billions of dollars would, would, would go, be filtered down, and each county office would get millions of dollars to then, you know, give out in loans. And, um, and the maybe firm that even, I work... Anurag, sorry, maybe it would actually even be helpful to talk about how important loans are in the farming business and why, why that's such a, a big part of USDA's programming. Absolutely. Uh, the the loans are what allow a farmer to have money on the front end. So, you know, in, in typically in the south, for example, you know, it all varies upon uh, temperature and weather and such. But let's just take, uh, you know, a, you know, a cotton farm in the south. You know, in the in the um, early in the year, what you would need is you need to prepare the lo- prepare the land, um, uh, till it, get um, uh, soil, uh, sorry, fertilizer. Um, Put some chemicals down. I mean, prepare the land. Then you'd seed it, um, and then you know you'd have to kind of take care of the crops. And you actually wouldn't get paid until the end of the crop year. So the the front end money, unless you're you know individually wealthy, um, uh, the money on the front end you know allows you to get to the point where you harvest your crops and then can go to market, and then you can pay back your loans and you know keep the rest as profit, put it back into your farm, put it into your family. But uh, it's very important, these loan programs. And, and in, in theory, the USDA's loan programs you know, were a great thing and were a great asset. They, the, the USDA served as what they call a lender of last resort. So if you couldn't get a loan from a bank um, because you were too small, um, you know, or you didn't have enough crop history, or you had a couple bad years, USDA was to be that lender, that backstop, to make sure that you had enough land to go, uh, enough Money to go get seed and fertilizer, et cetera. So these programs um, uh, uh, theoretically should have been open to everybody. However, if you had a uh, a local um, a county official, you know, a loan supervisor, which is actually a federal employee who worked in the rural local county office, um, uh, that person, when they got their millions of dollars to give out, they'd first give it to friends and family, people they knew, people they wanted to help. If you weren't in that circle, if you weren't in that club, you were not going to get that money. Uh, and uh, this, the history of this fact pattern I just described to you uh, goes back decades. Um, and um, my, uh, our, law, our little law firm, one of the partners there, um, was actually a, a, an expert on helping um, farmers get loans and get other subsidies. Um, but most of who he, uh, who he and we dealt with were not minority farmers. They were the big... Uh, you know the big white farmers with you know thousands of acres of land, and those were the favored people in these offices. Um, one day in '97, three African American farmers came into our um, office and told us this story, um, and asked us to represent them. Um, and so they, and their their own story was what you're talking about, like um, essentially a, not an equal ability to get access to the loans. Yes. So uh, they they told us that story with some digging um, and, and and with their help. Um, you know, we found a couple things that were happening right then and there in 1997. Um, 
One is the U.S. Department of Agriculture under Dan Glickman, uh, Secretary Glickman, um, did a self-study called the Civil Rights Action Team Report. Um, uh, and that self-study revealed all of these fact patterns uh, and the differential treatment between uh, minority farmers and white farmers. Um, uh, at the same time, what even made things worse is there was another study done the following year, 1998. It was a series of studies from the USDA Office of Inspector General. General, which found that the Civil Rights Office of the U.S. Department of Agriculture, the office that was supposed to investigate any allegations or complaints of discrimination, that that um, office had been defunded 15 years earlier, 1983. Uh, so essentially, um, uh, the local county um, official uh, who was, you know, being blatant and racist and giving out loans actually didn't have any checks and balances because there was no oversight, no civil rights office that was functioning or to, to check them. And, and that's essentially the heart of the case, not only the one we did that you mentioned, Pigford, with the African-American farmers, but two years later we filed another case called Keep Seagull on behalf of Amer American Indian farmers. The fact pattern being, being absolutely identical, uh, the only difference being uh, the, that there are different parts of the country were involved. And so this is the background that uh, ultimately gave USDA the nickname The Last Plantation. Which That's right, because there's plantation owners um, and, and the workers in the fields. And uh, this is the kind of thing that if you got to go into the house, um, uh, you were special, you were an invited guest, you were family, meaning those people who got the loans, um, and everyone else was out in the fields. Um, and Anurag, can you tell us, I mean, because you've traveled all throughout the South, right, and you spoke to... Um, all of these or a lot of these farmers that experienced this discrimination, what kind of stories were you hearing from them? Uh, a lot of, un unfortunately, a lot of repeating fact patterns. Uh, the, some of them, we, well, I went to the office, I asked about a loan, they told me they didn't have any money and uh, told me to go away. Uh, I went to the office, tried to get a loan, um, uh, they handed me a 40-page application, told me to uh, go away and fill it out, you know, and then I looked across the office and they were helping three white farmers fill out the paperwork, but they wouldn't help me. Um, we had a, a documented case that actually 60 Minutes uh, reported out uh, back in 98, uh, and and that was how a um, uh, a county official uh, had something called Black Tuesdays, where he would only see African American uh, uh, customers um, on Tuesdays. Uh, the, the 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 list goes on and on, uh, and and. Frankly, uh, uh, it gets even more complicated and sophisticated, where they would give give a loan, but nowhere near enough to be successful. Um, and then they, you know, and 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 any farmer will tell you that they work with their bank year after year after year. They do business plans. Um, none none of this help was given to the minority farmers. This kind of intimate um, bank, uh, borrower lender relationship, which which is which is present throughout rural America, um, but it, in, in USDA's case, it was not, it was differential between, it was disparate between uh, what minorities uh, and, and, and white farmers, uh, how they were treated. Mm -hmm. So take us back to your, you're a junior attorney in, in Washington, D.C. in 1997, and you're working at a firm that typically works with um, successful farmers in 
getting more money from the USDA and you have these farmers come in and what, what was the initial reaction of, of you and your colleagues? Uh, it, it was stunning. Uh, Alex Pyres, who's, who was the partner um, uh, uh, back then in 97, my boss, who started the case, uh, and I, he, I started it with him, uh, I, our immediate reaction, his immediate reaction was, well, everybody knows you can't trust USDA. Uh, so it was, uh, although the, the fact pattern of the racism was stunning, uh, I think what uh, Alex, who had a history of, of suing the government to, to try to get you know, fair treatment, uh, fair subsidies and loans for his very rich uh, white farmers. Our our immediate reaction wasn't necessarily shock by the by the race part, but it was uh, it was it was shock at how blatantly bad um, uh, USDA uh, was behaving, just generally speaking, and and that they they needed to there needed to be some justice. Um, because it was it is an agency that was very poorly run at that time and so how did you set about uh, starting the case uh, well we decided to go get we decided to go to, to the south and get some plaintiffs um, you know it's it, it, it's a, it was a really unique situation because normally in a class action you get your lead plaintiffs uh, you file you you take your case to a certain point um, and then once the judge certifies your class uh, then you are allowed to then advertise across the country um, and then go get more farmers. We we knew that the government and the best lawyers in our country work for the Department of Justice, and the Department of Justice was representing USDA. Uh, we knew they were going to come at us. We were a little firm. We knew we had to make a splash right away, and we thought the way we'd do it is go out and get as many plaintiffs as we can on the front end. So we started traveling around the South and, and, and collecting names and having meetings, um, and three uh, grew to seven grew to 11 grew to, grew to 26 and by the time we were done we had over 400 farmers signed up and that really made a splash and, so, I'm sorry go ahead, Talia. <laughs> I'm wondering um, aside from the sheer number of plaintiffs you had um, and also maybe the consistency of their stories what you think helped you win what were some of the, the big flashpoints of your case that you think pushed it to be successful yeah, we had some great ones. We um, uh, one of the things that I'm not sure we fully expected uh, was it started becoming a bit of a movement in the African American farming community, and the farmers every time we had a hearing would uh, get in their cars and trucks and drive up uh, to uh, Washington D.C. Uh, and you know, and it was as amazing as one of the guys would start in southern Georgia, pick someone up, you know, in northern Georgia, and then pick someone else up in South Carolina, and pick someone else up in North Carolina. And we would have hundreds of farmers show up at our at our hearings. And for a federal court, I mean, when you watch movies, you see, oh, courtrooms are packed. That doesn't really happen in real life. <laughs> um, and, and so the fact that it was happening um, really sent a signal to the judge. It sent a signal to the media. It's, it, you know, and, and, and this kind of movement began uh, and it really turned 
the dynamics of of a bunch of little law firms against big bad you know uh, Department of Justice, uh, you know David and Goliath. It really kind of started leveling the playing field a little bit because we we kind of had the white hat on and we had this movement behind us. And it was all started by the farmers. So um, Anurag, I want to take a short break and then come back and hear a little bit more about that courtroom drama and the and the role of the media in all this. You are listening to A Harbor, A Sailor by the Sparrows. This is Eating Matters on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. following program was brought to you by S. Wallace Edwards & Sons. Edwards Suriano hams are aged to perfection for no less than 400 days and hickory smoked to achieve a deep mahogany color. The Edwards name is well known for its world-class aged and cured meats. Their exclusive curing and aging recipe produces a unique flavor profile that enhances the quality characteristics of Berkshire pork. Optimum amounts of pure white fat marbling contribute to a flavor that's a delicate, perfect balance between sweet and salty. For more information, visit edwardsvaham.com. Hello, this is Mark Ladner from Del Posto, and you're listening to Heritage Radio Network. And we're back on Eating Matters. I'm Kim Kessler. We're talking today about the uh, discrimination case against the USDA, Pigford v. Glickman, and its companion case, or somewhat of a companion case, Keep Siegel versus USDA. I'm also joined by Talia Rolf, who is guest co-hosting with me today. And we have Anurag Varma, one of the plaintiff's counsel from the case on the line with us. So Anurag, before the break, we were just starting to hear a little bit about that David and Goliath narrative that the case um, began to fit into when you began to have court hearings. And I wanted to ask you more about that context, because the case did have a real political resonance, and that was part of what you were able to use to advance your um, to advance your goals as plaintiff's counsel. So can you share with us, you know, what were some of those moments in the courtroom that caught the media's attention and what were the dynamics at play with the case being situated in D.C.? Sure. I, I think what caught everyone's attention uh, wasn't necessarily the courtroom drama, but, but more the story. Um, and I think you know, the Wall Street Journal did a front page story on our case. Um, so did the Washington Post and the New York Times. And 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 before you knew it, 60 Minutes loved the story. Uh, and they designated about uh, about uh, half an hour of their show just towards a piece about 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 this uh, this uh, this case. And and. There was a there was a stretch of time that that's particularly um, prominent in my mind um, around September of 1998, and I might I might be a little bit off on the dates, but uh, the U.S. Congress um, uh, passed 
special legislation inserted in the, I believe, in the appropriations bill. They inserted special language just to waive the statute of limitations in our in in, in our in the Pickford case and then all future cases like it. And just for anyone who doesn't know what the statute of limitations is, it's 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 basically a time bar. So you know, if you get into a car accident, and you want to sue somebody, you have to do it within you know two years, three years, six years, whatever the law says. But there's always a time limit. Um, so we brought this case in 1997, um, and so theoretically there was a limit of two years, three years, six years, whatever the, the law said. So you, we couldn't go back all the way back to when they dismantled the um, uh, the Office of Civil Rights. Uh, well, Congress stepped in, and Democrats and Republicans together, Newt Gingrich and the Congressional Black Caucus, got together and passed a waiver. Uh, of the statute of limitations, it's in the it's in the U.S. law, um, and uh, uh, that w- that waiver then let us go ba- all the way back to '81. That caught the media's attention. Uh, this is in September. In October, uh, September also was the uh, 60 Minutes airing of the 60 Minutes story, uh, and we were, we had heard gotten word um, that uh, our federal judge uh, and his staff had gathered around a TV to watch it together. The 60 Minutes uh, story. Uh, then uh, we had a hearing. Um, I believe the date was around uh, October 13th. On October 9th, the judge certified us as a class action, which is a very big moment um, uh, in any class action case. It basically gives the blessing to plaintiffs that, yes, you are a united whole, um, and you're allowed to take this case nationally. Um, uh, three days later, um, or four days later, on the 13th, we were supposed to have a hearing in Washington. So on the 12th, um, about two, three hundred African American farmers came up to Washington D.C. and marched. Um, and then the next day, we had our hearing, and there were so many people at the hearing they had to move it into a special courtroom to accommodate all of us. Um, and I, and I think after all of that, maybe it was a week later, October 20th, we got a call from um, a political appointee in the U.S. Department of Justice saying. Okay, we're ready to talk settlement, uh, and and th- that's that's uh, just an illustration of how a movement kind of created its own moments, uh, and and uh, it was a very exciting time. Um, we definitely want to get to um, keep Siegel and other similar cases, but as you're talking about sort of this um, movement and crowd, I, c- I can't help but thinking about um, the protests that we have been seeing recently. I'm wondering if you see another lawsuit on the horizon um, that is going to be similar. I mean, we have that same sort of groundswell, and it's interesting to think of um, Pigford as happening so long ago, and yet we still have, you know, not in agriculture necessarily, but a lot of um, a lot of this, this movement and this energy around um, African-American rights in America. I'm wondering sort of if, if it's resonated with you and and how you see it playing out um, today or echoing today. Right. And it's interesting that you say that. So um, uh, the the groundswell in our case uh, came after... Uh, you know, after we'd filed the case. Um, and uh, I, I think that we were able to kind of channel or direct um, uh, a lot of the energy. Uh, and that's because we had a lawsuit. It focused on loans. It had a defendant. It had a cause of action. Um, and um, uh, 
there was there was you know uh, an ability to kind of laser like focus uh, mm-hmm. I, I think that one of the things that's really hard not just because of the state of the law of class action law um, uh, which is which is the courts are leaning more and more against class actions mm-hmm. um, uh, but but the uh, the question is, 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 can a clever lawyer or a group of lawyers find a way to take a wrong and fit it into what we call a cause of action, basically a way, a, a, an avenue to get relief through the courts? A way so, to sue. Mm-hmm. Uh, when, you know, uh, I'm going to jump to the Keep Siegel case. You know, the... the, the 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 vehicle and the the fact pattern being what it, it what it was it had it had a thread that that went through different communities and that thread being that if you uh, did not look like the person who was giving out the loans, or if you didn't grow up with him and hang out with him, and so on and so forth, um, then you were not going to get a loan. And that person will, could continue to get away with such conduct because at a national level, there was no checks and balances, checks and balances that are actually required by, by U.S. law. It's that thread which allowed us then to file the American Indian case uh, called Keep Siegel. Mm-hmm. Uh, unfortunately, by the time we filed Keep Siegel, uh, the government had really dug its heels in and had decided we're not settling. We're, you know, you know in so, bad grammar, you know, we're not settling no time. Um, and, so what was it? Um, how did that case develop uh, and, and, then? Sure, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to ask you then. How did that case develop and, and what were the differences you described, you know, really quite... Um, particularly for a massive class action, quite a quick resolution relatively coming about um, or at least moving towards settlement in the Pickford case. And um, how did how did things move with Keep Signal? I know it was a different story. Yeah, it was a different slog. The government, the Department of Justice, um, was, 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 was basically very driven to not repeat, which turned out to be a very big loss in the African-American farmer's case um, for for lawyers, you know, and, and a lot of courtroom lawyers, you know, think about things in terms of wins and losses. Uh, you know, the, even though it was a settlement, you know, it was a, essentially a loss. Um, and they were uh, really uh, looking at uh, looking at not having that repeat. Um, the administration was also changing uh, at the time, so uh, there was just a different view towards discrimination cases. Um, you know, again, this is 99-2000. Uh, and the other thing is is that uh, it was a little, a lot more difficult to organize east to west. See, when you have uh, when you have a lot of African American farmers coming, um, you know, from the south. I mean, in many ways, it's essentially one highway, I ninety five. You know, and maybe another highway. You know, when you're when you're going east to west, and you know, North Dakota is a long ways away. Mm-hmm. Arizona and New Mexico are a long ways away from Washington D.C. Uh, you can't just drive and you know pay for two tanks of gas and drive back. Right. I mean, you, you actually have to buy a thousand dollar plane ticket. I mean, so so the, the, it was it was very different. The media paid less attention because the courtroom momentum wasn't there because DOJ was fighting so hard. That 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 case was was a lot more difficult and and, and probably in some ways a lot more 
normal. <laughs> the, <laughs> well, the, the, the typical class case, action. Settling, going from start to finish in 18 months, is, is, is that, that's something else. So, but ultimately, the Keepsickle case also resulted in a very significant uh, settlement amount. And I did want to ask you, I know that there has been some controversy regarding the settlements and the size of the settlements. Um, and some have criticized the government's broad approach to creating large these large settlement funds and not requiring significant documentation to prove claims and um, that there's been questions about whether or not the settlements are magnets for fraud. And I wanted to get your perspective on that. What's your view on the size of the settlements and do you think that the cases were resolved uh, correctly? Yeah, sure. Sure, absolutely. Now, our regular response and Alex Pyres and myself and many others, our response generally is is that um, these settlements happen all the time and require a lot less information than, than our cases did. Our cases required someone to fill out six pieces of paper, six pages of paper, um, sign an affidavit. I mean, uh, a whole lot was required of each person compared to the average check the box class action settlement. You know, aluminum siding, your you know cases where you just check the box. Yes, I bought aluminum siding in you know 1991. Check, and then you get a check in the mail. That's uh, but secondly is you know. Even the folks alleging, you know, fraud, um, I'm not sure they'd be alleging fraud if if they were talking not about minority farmers. I mean, I mean, these class actions settle for hundreds of millions of dollars all the time, billions of dollars in some cases, um, and the government you know, what would walk into settlement discussions saying, well, we need to stop fraud, and we would turn to them and said, actually, what you need to be focused on is compensating victims of racial discrimination. Um, so the focus on fraud, we've always rejected it, um, and um, uh, I, uh, and I think, I think this is, these were great settlements, and frankly, I wish the folks didn't have to fill out so much paperwork, but in a, in a settlement, you don't win on every point. Mm-hmm. And um, Anurag, you you actually testified before the UN High Commission on Minorities about this um, topic. And I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit what that commission focused on and sort of how Pickford and Keepsiegel do relate to, you know, countries outside the U.S. and on a, a global scale when we're, we're talking about discrimination. Sure. Yeah. And, and, and uh, it was very interesting. It was the United Nations uh, Human Rights Commission in Geneva, and they were focused on, on the relationship between uh, disproportionate land ownership um, uh, and, and minority populations uh, as a global phenomenon. Uh, and uh, essentially, when you talk about somebody not being given the opportunity to get the loans necessary to grow their farming operation, and then buy more land and et cetera, et cetera. I mean, that's they're all interlinked in that way. And the UN was was focused on that. Um, it was very interesting. Uh, in a way, I, I felt both very grateful um, and sad. Um, I met um, folks such as um, you know a nomadic farming tribe from rural Ethiopia that said your story is exactly like our story with government programs, uh, and they were a minority population in that country. Um, they said, well, how? You know, how can we do this? And the answer is, in a lot of countries, they don't have our court system and, and our avenues for seeking relief. Uh, and so it made me very appreciative of kind of the fact that in America we have this fancy car called our court system. Um, and not every country has that same fancy car. Um, so it was very, very eye-opening, but it, it really did link the work that we were doing um, with 
what people all over the what, what minority populations face uh, all over the world. So, Anurag, I want to, before we wrap up, ask you about your personal experience working on this case because it's somewhat of an unusual career story to have uh, these farmers walk into your office when I know that you were, I think, just relatively uh, quickly out of law school at that point. But it shows how taking an opportunity can really lead you to unexpected places. And so for our listeners, what advice would you give to either young lawyers or other professionals who do want to use their skills in some way to working towards a more just society? Yeah, and it's and it's. Uh, I hate to copy or, or or violate law by copying Nike, but you just do it, <laughs> uh, and 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 that's you can't always overthink and 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 chart everything out and be real type A about everything, and you can't be lazy either. You gotta you you, you just gotta take the opportunity, seize the day, and and just do it. And and it was it's it's been the greatest honor in my life to, to, to work on both of these cases and as and and you're right, I was twenty four years old, um and uh um uh, now I'm not <laughs> and and as and as my boss back then said, this case is gonna spoil you for the rest of your life because you're doing it first. Um and uh, absolutely uh, but but it all happened because we just we didn't really think a lot about consequences. We didn't, you know, you know, get scared or, or get excited. We just did it. So uh, uh, I think that's that's the real message, and I'm just very proud to be a part of it. It's a very good advice, especially for young lawyers. Don't be tight bay and overthink. <laughs> now we know how important yeah. that is. <laughs> Uh, it's the impossible, but yeah. <laughs> um, all right. Well, so, Anurag, I want to thank you so much for being on today and telling us about the cases and your experience with them. Um, we're glad that you could join. And that's going to bring us to the end of this episode of Eating Matters. I want to also thank Talia for joining me here in the studio today and to Tim Archer for our show music and all of our sponsors. This show will be available at Heritage Radio Network as well as as a podcast at iTunes and Stitcher. I'm Kim Kessler, and thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.